Hello, my name is Mark Gibson, and you're listening to the podcast version of the Chagask Signpost series, a weekly webinar that promotes and examines sustainability in Irish farming. Very welcome to this morning's Signpost webinar. We hope you're keeping safe and well wherever you're joining us from today. Last month, Chagas launched its latest version of the Marginal Abatement Cost Curve, also known as the MAC, which will assist farmers and the agriculture sector to reduce greenhouse gas emissions. During the launch, Chagas Director Professor Frank O'Mara said that the Chagas 2023 MAC shows that there is a technology pathway for the agriculture sector to meet its obligation to reduce greenhouse gas emissions but it requires a very high uptake of the currently available mitigation measures to f- and future technologies to achieve that. So to discuss the MAC, the new MAC, in detail, we're delighted to be joined by Professor Gary Lanigan, who is Research Officer in Chagask in Johnstown Castle. Gary, good morning to you. Hi, Mark. And Pat Murphy, you're going to help us with questions later on. Hello. Thanks, uh, thanks, Pat. And so, Gary, maybe you could tell us a little bit about the work that you're doing in this whole space uh, in, in climate action. Yeah, so I suppose I've been working on uh, greenhouse gas emissions from agriculture for, I'd say, the past 18, 19 years now. Um, and uh, in particular, uh, I work on carbon sequestration and nitrous oxide emissions um, from agricultural soils. So um, really, then I kind of fell into uh, doing the MAC really around about 11, 12 years ago in the first iteration. And then uh, foolishly uh, took it on um, in the second iteration and now the third iteration. So so the first time we produced the MAC, I think it was about 20 or 30 pages long. Second one was 87 pages, and this is topping in at 353 pages. So it's got a little bit bigger every time we do it. A huge amount of science backing this this latest version. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely, yeah. So, um, so Gary, you're going to step us through the this this latest version. Um, so you have a presentation, if you'd like to share that with us. I uh, indeed. Um, okay, so again, before I start, I would like to uh, thank my co-authors, who are various, um, 90% of them are all from Chagask. Um, uh, two, though, who I'd, I'd like to in particular thank who are non-Chagask, Kevin Black from Furs Limited, um, and also John Redmond from uh, the Forestry Service and the Department of Agriculture, um, who were both very vital in assisting us with the forestry parts of the MAC. Um, and then, of course, I would uh, like to thank all of my Chagask colleagues, um, uh, while I uh, write the MAC and give the MAC, um, I am standing literally on the shoulders of my colleagues um, who who do all of the scientific research. So uh, uh, big thanks to them. So first of all, what is a MAC? Why do we need it? Um, a MAC essentially is a marginal abatement cost curve, is a visual way of setting out mitigation options. And it was originally designed by McKinsey's uh, consultants and they did it. They they devised this uh, method of viewing uh, mitigation options in, in order to allow policymakers and stakeholders to uh, see in a quite a visual way um, which mitigation options were uh, the least cost um, and 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 to be able to generate a least cost pathway uh, towards um, uh, achieving uh, targets and achieving reductions in emissions. So essentially, the the MAC ranks uh, measures from the least expensive 
to the most expensive. So it's easy to see, A, how much mitigation will be delivered, but also um, the cost uh, per tonne of uh, CO2 equivalents um, that it will take to actually reduce emissions. Um, we last uh, published the MAC in 2018, so five years ago. Um, why are we doing a new MAC now? Well, first of all, uh, we've had a huge amount of new science over the last five years, so science doesn't remain static. And secondly, um, the policy landscape has changed very, very significantly. So five years ago, we had no sectoral targets. We had no national target in terms of the, um, there, there was no um, uh, Climate Action and Low Carbon Development Act. Now there is, we have a national target reducing emissions by 51% by uh, 2030. And we have a sectoral target of reducing agricultural emissions by 25% by 2030. And similar to the previous MAC, we actually produced three separate MACs. We do one for agriculture, one for land use, land use change and forestry, and one for bioenergy sector. And that's because these are all uh, ancillary sectors that, that are also very related to agriculture. So in terms of key considerations, um, in the MAC, we've looked at three activity scenarios. So this is, we've looked at a range of different animal numbers and I'll come on to this in a second. Um, so the main scenario we look at is what we call S1, scenario one, and that's the business as usual scenario. And this is used by the EPA, for example, in their projections of where agricultural emissions will be by 2030. And then we also have an S2, which is a lower activity uh, uh, scenario, and S3, which is a stretch target, a higher activity uh, scenario for agriculture. Um, one thing that's very different about this MAC is that we have two different adoption pathways. So we have two levels of ambition in terms of adoption of measures. Pathway one, which is um, the uh, very high, which is the high uptake pathway, and pathway two, which is the very very high uptake pathway. Um, and I apologize, I apologize for the the lack of imagination in terms of the um, the naming of these adoption pathways. We thought about different names such as moderate and enhanced or um, low and high, but uh, you know uh, the the reality is even pathway one is is a, is a relatively high adoption pathway, and pathway two really is a stretch target. So we have two levels of adoption, but then we also have different speeds of adoption. So the rate at which um, 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 method or mitigation measures are taken up. So for uh, some of the more well-known measures, such as um, uh, protected urea, for example, or clover or liming, we assume linear uptake of measures. So that is the measures are taken up at a constant rate year on year. For some new measures, such as uh, methane inhibitors, um, we have what's caused, uh, called a sigmoidal uptake. So we have very little uptake at the start. And then right at the end, in the last couple of years, we have very, very high levels of uptake as, the, the, uh, as these mitigation options become more mature and much more well-known. And then for other uh, mitigation uh, measures, such as low emission slurry spreading, we front load. Uh, the mitigation. So we have different speeds of uptake for different measures. 
this time as well, uh, one important thing we've done is separate out efficiency measures. So efficiency measures are things such as animal health, such as um, uh, breeding um, for beef and dairy cattle, you know, things like terminal indices uh, and maternal indices. And we've separated those out this time because while they reduce the carbon footprint, and it still, of course, is incredibly vital that we reduce the carbon footprint of beef and of milk produce, um, they don't necessarily impact on absolute emissions. So, for example, while sex semen um, will uh, improve the carbon efficiency of milk and of, um, of meat production, um, it may, in fact, uh, uh, increase um, overall uh, greenhouse gases from, from the sector. So um, these efficiency measures reduce the carbon footprint. They don't necessarily reduce total emissions okay important though uh one important thing to say about them is particularly things like animal health and genetics and extended grazing they're enablers for other measures such as reducing the age of slaughter so if you want to be able to reduce the age of slaughter and 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 be able to uh, um, uh, improve live weight gain you need genetics you need animal health and you need um, uh, things like extended grazing in terms of LULUCF and energy, um, we're only looking at one scenario, um, uh, unlike agriculture, where we're uh, looking at two levels of adoption. Okay, so um, the next thing I'll deal with is the um, the three activity scenarios. Um, now, uh, in the media and um, post the publication of the MAC, um, these scenarios were seen or were were certainly reported as Chagask advocating reductions in suckler herd or increases in the dairy herd or whatever. Um, and they are not Chagask recommendations. These are simply um, agricultural economic projections. So we use an economic model called a FAPRI model. And what the FAPRI model does is it um, assuming current policy and assuming current macroeconomic conditions, it projects out um, what uh, agricultural activity, i.e. dairy uh, cow numbers, suckler cow numbers, and fertilizer use uh, will be by 2030 under, and I will restate it, under current uh, economic uh, conditions and under current policy uh, conditions. Um, so essentially, um, what we have seen over the last number of years is a, is a slow but steady reduction in the suckler herd. And all the factory model is doing is extrapolating that reduction out to 2030. Okay, So under scenario one, which is our business as usual scenario, we project there'll be just under 1.7 million dairy cows by 2030, um, 632,000 suckler cows by 2030. Um, and uh, we will have, uh, we'll be using somewhere in the region just under 400,000 tonnes of nitrogen by 2030. Scenario two and scenario three, these are basically um, uh, scenarios where we have said, okay, well, what happens if animal numbers are lower or animal numbers are higher um, uh, than the, the baseline projection? So scenario two is um, 
just uh, again, it's just there for illustration, for illustrating what would happen if there was a lower increase in dairy numbers and a higher decrease in suckler numbers. Um, and again, scenario three um, is showing what would happen if there was stronger growth in dairy numbers and uh, and a very uh, a much lower reduction in suckler numbers. Okay, and what you can see is that between the lowest scenario, scenario two, um, you have emissions of twenty one point one million tons from the sector, um, and the highest is under scenario three, where you have the the higher number of uh, bovines and the highest amount of fertilizer, 421,000 tons. And you can see it's 22.8. So there's a 1.7 million ton spread between the lowest scenario and the highest scenario. But in scenario one, which is our business as usual scenario, we're projecting that without mitigation, our emissions will be somewhere around about 22 million tons by 2030. Okay, we have a target to reach, and that's 17.25 million tons. So we're a fair bit away from that without mitigation. So the next question is, how can we actually achieve our targets? Let's look at that. So the first thing I'll do is um, give you a very quick, um, very quick refresher on how to how to read a Mac. So what you can see is uh, a number of bars. The bars are all different shapes and sizes. Uh, some of them are below um, the x-axis line. Some of them are above the x-axis line. And basically the two things to bear in mind is the width of the bar is probably the most important thing because the width of the bar indicates the amount of greenhouse gases a measure will abate. So the wider and fatter the bar, uh, the more mitigation uh, the option is doing. The height of the bar indicates the cost. So if you've got a very high bar, it's um, uh, quite a costly measure. Um, and converse to this, if the bar is below the x-axis and the lower the bar is below the x-axis, the more cost negative it is. So if it's below the, the x-axis, happy days, it's a cost negative measure. So you actually save money by implementing it. So that's how to read a Mac. Um, so here is uh, the Mac for pathway one. So when we looked at pathway one um, uh, level of adoption, and um, what we uh, calculated was that we could reduce emissions by 2,820 kilotons. So that's 2,820,000 2, tons of um, uh, CO2 uh, by, uh, by uh, 2030. So 2.8 million tons, essentially. So um, what are the main measures that can do? So the other thing that always strikes me when I look at these maps is that there's no silver bullet here. So there's not one bar that's that's nice and broad and um, that's delivering most of the reduction. Um, and what you see is that, but there, there, there are three or four measures that do stick out. So first of all, reduced age of finishing is the largest, most effective measure. It's also cost negative. Okay, and that's delivering uh, around about 15% of the total mitigation. That's reduced age of finishing of beef animals. And here under pathway one, we're reducing the age of finishing by two months. Second, we fertilizer formulation. Again, delivers about 14% of the total reduction. And uh, the fertilizer formulation consists of three, uh, uh, two, two main parts, uh, the use of protected urea instead of uh, straight urea or instead of uh, straight calcium ammonium nitrate. 
uh, and secondly, uh, the use of uh, ammonium uh, um, fertilizers. Uh, and so, so 18612s, for example, or 10-10-20s, instead of nitrate-based fertilizers, um, that is 27-2.5-5s. So, um, so they're the two most effective measures. Then we have um, dairy EBI. So uh, dairy EBI um, would have normally been uh, only in the efficiency MAC previously, um, but uh, a research from Moorpark uh, has been showing that the high uh, dairy, the high EBI animals uh, within the dairy herd there um, are actually showing uh, lower methane emissions um, per unit milk than, than low EBI animals. So there is an actual benefit um, of EBI on actual methane emissions with higher EBI animals having lower methane. And finally then, um, the last one we have is feed additives. And feed additives don't kick in until towards near the end of the decade. These are, And the two main feed additives here, mainly 3NOP, and mainly being fed under pathway one during the housing period. Um, and what you can see is that, again, this is, is going to deliver somewhere in the region of 12% of the total abatement uh, by 2030, but again, only in the last uh, two or three years. So in terms of pathway one, uh, the thing to ask then, um, does pathway one get us to our target? So there's our target. We have to reduce from the we from what we project is 22 million tonnes by 2030 down to 17.25 million tonnes. Do we get there? The answer is no. Pathway one will only uh, give us um, a mitigation uh, of uh, 2.8 million tonnes, which means uh, we'll be at 19.1 million tonnes uh, by 2030, i.e. we will not make uh, the target. So then we looked at pathway two. This is pathway with much higher levels of adoption, and you can see uh, suddenly the, the bar broadens out. Uh, and essentially, um, pathway two, the headline is it delivers um, 4.85 million tonnes or 4,858 kilotons of CO2 abatement by 2030. Okay. Um, again, what are the main measures here? So quite similar to the last one, we have, again, feed additives and feed additives. Uh, under this scenario are the most is the most important measure and that's because we're now feeding um a, a lot of these inhibitors during the grazing period uh, to dairy cows and in this case we're using again 3NOP but also things like seaweeds and and in particular uh, halides um which is a a, a new product um, by uh, Galway company Glassport Bio um, and importantly that can be fed um, to animals during grazing. And it gives about a 20% reduction in methane emissions. Okay, so here we see uh, a much larger impact, almost uh, almost a megaton uh, of uh, a million tons of reduction from the feed additives, and it accounts for about 15% of total, total emissions reduction. Again, reduced age of finishing is highly important under this pathway. And here we're moving to a three-month reduction in the age of finishing. Uh, and again, it's delivering um, around about 14% of total mitigation. Fertilizer formulation, 
Again, the use of protected urea, the use of ammonium-based compounds, and then also we're starting to um, uh, put in um, a little bit of protected urea with a nitrification inhibitor, um, replacing about uh, 15 to 20% of calcium ammonium nitrate here, and this delivers about 11 to 12% of our total uh, emissions mitigation. And then we have a new measure in here, which is diversification impacts. And essentially what this is, is um, the amount of, of animals that would be displaced um, by uptake of organic farming, um, of growing feedstock for a, for a vibrant biomethane uh, industry. And in particular, um, this diversification impact measure becomes important uh, because we are now providing a feedstock for 5.7 terawatt hours of biomethane. Um, and we estimate that um, uh, uh, the diversification impacts, the displacement of animals that would occur for um, land for afforestation, land for organics, land for biomethane feedstock, or the extension of tillage uh, would displace somewhere in the region about 137,000 livestock units. And that those amounts of livestock units could be made up of a combination of uh, of cattle and of sheep. And that delivers about 10% of our total reduction. So pathway two delivers 4.8 million tons of uh, CO2 abatement. Again, we have a target of 17.25, and do we reach it? And we do, just about by the skin of our teeth. Pathway two will deliver um, a, a sector that would be emitting 17 million tons um, by 2030. Okay, so here in this uh, table here, we have a combination of all the different scenarios, uh, the, the activity scenarios times the pathway. And what you see is that in fact, only two, only two of these combinations uh, make your target. That's scenario one, which is the business as usual scenario, or scenario two, which is the lower animals number scenario in combination with pathway two mitigation. And what you see is for both of those scenarios times uh, adoption pathways, um, you would actually make um, the, the, the target uh, set out under the climate action plan. So the question then is pathway one and pathway two. Well, you know, what's in, what, what are the levels of uptake in these, uh, in these uh, pathways? So if we look and we focus mainly on pathway two, what you can see is we're talking about a reduction in chemical nitrogen uh, to about 286,000 tons of nitrogen uh, by 2030. So this goes beyond what was in acclimatize. Acclimatize has set a target of 300,000 tons of nitrogen by 2030 in order to achieve um, the targets under climate action plan. Uh, we would require um, a 30% reduction to about 286,000 tons of nitrogen uh, by 2030. You're talking about um, the total a replacement of straight urea with protected urea, and um, the almost total um, replacement, uh, over 90% replacement of calcium ammonium nitrate with protected urea, and a 65% uh, replacement of nitrate-based compounds with ammonium-based compounds. You're talking about a, a reduction in the age of finishing um, for both um, suckler and dairy beef of somewhere in the region of three months. 
you're talking about uh, 50% of uh, feed additives being fed to dairy cows during the grazing season and 65% um, inclusion of feed additives in, uh, in all bovine diets uh, during the housing period. As I said, for displacement, you're talking about um, the displacement of uh, 137 to 138,000 livestock units, and then um, a biomethane industry, and that's mainly driven by um, a biomethane industry. And then also resulting from that biomethane industry is a generation of about three and a half million cubic meters of digestate, which could be then uh, used to displace fertilizer emissions even further. Um, and then you've also got um, manure management, so slurry aeration, slurry acidification um, on 40% of dairy farms and 20% of uh, other livestock farms. So very, very high levels of adoption um, uh, required to reach these targets. And in fact, um, far higher levels of adoption than could probably be achieved um, by advisory and extension services alone. So um, second, if we look at land use, land use change, again, pathway one and pathway two uh, we have here. And what we see in their pathway one um, is LULUCF can deliver 2.3 million tonnes of uh, mitigation by 2030. And um, in terms of pathway two, it can deliver over 4 million uh, tons, 4.1 million tons of mitigation by 2030. And again, what you can see is that um, you've no silver bullet. However, there are the one thing that does stick out is the uh, water table management on peat soils. So here um, we're altering the water table on 80,000 hectares of uh, grassland on peat soils. Now, uh, we did this analysis before. Um, a recent Chagas paper that came out uh, stating um, that the amount of actually drained uh, grassland on peat soils was actually much lower than is in our national in inventory. And the inventory assumes uh, just under 340,000 hectares of land uh, that's drained on, on peat soils, grassland on peat soils. Um, however, uh, the, the, the study that my colleagues Pat Tui own Fenton, William O'Sullivan and Connor Bracken um, did. Uh, they've uh, surmised that that amount is probably between uh, 80 and 120,000 hectares. So re-wetting up 80,000 hectares could be almost all of the the the, the agricultural lands uh, that's on drained peat soils. So again, a very, very high target to, to reach. Um, we also then have grassland management here. So grassland management, um, so that's things like getting your pH right, getting clover in, getting multi-species swords in um, on about 760,000 hectares of land. Hedgerows, we're talking about um, between uh, 20 and 40,000 hectares of new, or uh, kilometers of new hedgerows, and then managing uh, existing hedgerows better, allowing them to grow out a meter and up a meter. And that can, again, deliver uh, a, a reasonable amount of mitigation. And then um, the, the one thing um, that, that, that do does come out of here is how little uh, mitigation a forestation can do to 2030. So a forestation is going to be incredibly important for reaching climate neutrality by 2050. 
But um, because we've had very, very low levels of afforestation up to now, over the last three years, we've been averaging somewhere in the region about uh, two and a half thousand hectares of uh, of afforestation per annum. Um, so afforestation out to 2030 will deliver very little mitigation, about point two, about 200,000 tonnes or so. Um, what will deliver much more mitigation will be uh, adjusting and extending uh, the age of rotation. So if you simply ex- extend the age of rotation of forest stands to what we term the max- mean maximum annual increment, um, you actually end up with more wood um, uh, and you... You just need to extend the age of rotation by seven to eight years. Okay, so in terms of LULUCF, um, what is the impact on emissions? So the first thing to bear in mind is that under business as usual, uh, LULUCF emissions, land use, land use change emissions are projected to grow very, very significantly over the next number of years. And that's because A, we have a lot of grasslands on organic soils that emit an awful lot of carbon, and B, our forestry sink is disappearing over the next number of years. And that's because A, we've had low rates of afforestation, and B, our forestry is 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 in the, 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 the cycle and the age profile of our forestry means we're clear felling a lot of our forests over the next seven to eight years. So our emissions uh, are due to grow. We haven't got a, a climate action plan target, so there's no sectoral target at the moment for land use, land use change in forestry. There is, however, a hard EU target, which is to reduce emissions by uh, 13.6% relative to uh, 2016 to 2018 levels. So this is the target. What you can see is under pathway one, we don't make the target. And again, under pathway two, we just about scrape and make that target. So again, high rates of adoption needed to make a target. What's in uh, uh, those uh, that pathway one, pathway two, so under pathway two, um, both pathways have the same level of afforestation, 8,000 hectares per annum uh, up to 2030, reduced deforestation on just under five, 500 hectares per annum, um, a 31% uh, uh, to extend the age of rotations on 31% of our forest estate um, in terms then of uh, enhancing grassland sequestration, um, optimizing soil nutrition, grazing intensity and putting in clover and uh, just over three quarters of a million uh, hectares of grassland, raising the water table uh, on 80,000 hectares of uh, peat soils now, when I say raising the water table, it doesn't need to be all the way to the surface. So we're not talking about flooding the land necessarily. Um, you know, there they, it could be uh, simply raising it to, you know, between uh, 20 and 30 centimetres below the surface. Planting of 40,000 kilometres of new hedgerows and optimally managing another 75,000 kilometres. So again, very, very high targets to reach. Um, lastly, we talk about bioenergy and here you do have a couple of silver bullets. So uh, the use of wood energy um, uh, contributes uh, quite significantly over 50% of the total of uh, fossil fuel displacement. Uh, and then also uh, reaching the biomethane target um, contributes um, over a third 
Um, so again, you're talking about very, very high levels of biomethane. You're talking about the by 2030 having somewhere in the region of 200 uh, biomethane plants uh, in the country. Okay, um, as you can see, they're all cost negative, and um, because when we again when we were generating these uh, max, the price of energy was very high. However. Uh, under lower gas prices, and um, biomethane can be quite costly. So, so in fact, there's a there's a huge stretch in 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 the cost range of biomethane, and that depends on a the price of the feedstock that is grass silage, um, and also uh, the price of um, a kilowatt hour of gas. But again, you can see uh, biomethane can contribute very significantly over 2 million tonnes under pathway 1 and over 3 million tonnes, 3.3 million tonnes um, under pathway 2. And again, on bioenergy under pathway 2, very ambitious targets for biomethane um, and also very ambitious targets for displacement of uh, solid fossil fuels. So just to end up, what are the key messages here? So agriculture really um, can uh, reach its target, um, but it will require very, very high adoption rates of measures as outlined in Pathway 2. These are extremely challenging. And in fact, they're challenging to the extent that in increased advisory and extension services will, of course, be key to helping to guide farmers and landowners on the pathway to both achieving the 2030 targets and furthermore to achieving climate neutrality. But while increased and extension services will be vital, um, the levels of uptake under pathway two um, are beyond what advisory and peer learning can deliver alone. Um, and there will be a need uh, for clear policy guidance. Reductions in land use, land use change emissions, of greater than 14%, which is the EU target, uh, would require new science and inventory refinement. Otherwise, um, it is literally impossible uh, to reach uh, a higher uh, target um, for the land use sector. Agriculture and land use sort of energy substitution can significantly uh, contribute to energy sector decarbonisation, almost 10% of the, of the, uh, the energy sector's uh, target. But of course, uh, fossil fuel substitution from grass, uh, you know, grown on farms and fed into bioreactors, or um, from trees that are grown on 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 land, um, they don't, they contribute to the energy sector's decarbonisation. They don't count to the agricultural sector. Just to bear that in mind, and finally, continuing research and development both in terms of mitigation technologies and inventory adjustments to, to get measures into the inventory so we can count them, uh, remains a, a big priority um, uh, for us uh, in order uh, both to achieve our 2030 and 2050 targets. So thank you very much for your attention today. Mary, thanks so much. Um, really, really clear presentation. I don't think I've seen the Mac ever so clearly presented. So um appreciate that there's effort that goes into that. So um I think it's it's very clear to me that the size of the the challenge. Um and uh I mean you you haven't uh you've been quite unflinching in in the in the way you've presented that. That's um the scenario two in particular is is you know there's there's high levels of adoption required there. 
you 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 made an interesting comment there a few times around the that that these targets won't be achieved alone through advisory support and and knowledge that that there will be uh, incentives required. I mean, have you considered the types of in- incentives or or, or what sort? Uh, um, no, absolutely not, Mark. And I, 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 we're always very clear on this, and I'm always very clear. In particular, we are there to provide the scientific information. Um, that feeds into policy, but we do not do policy. Um, that's that's left up to the policymakers. Um, however, you know, if you want to, you know, replace 100% of straight urea with protected urea, you know, it 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 doesn't take um it doesn't take a genius to to work out what sort of policies would be required there. Yeah. Um. So you know, there there's um we have been talking. Uh, to our colleagues in the Department of Agriculture, um, because they're quite keen to to uh, adopt the MAC, uh, translate the, the MAC into policy. Um, so uh, we provide them with the scientific basis, um, and um, uh, they then make the the policy based on on that scientific basis. So science based policy is always better than uh, policy that's not guided by any science. Yeah, yeah, I know that's very clear, um, Gary. Just in terms of the figures in the last number of years, like what sort of a trajectory are we on in terms of uh, the reduction of emissions and, and also the adoption of of some of these technologies, the the likes of the the less. And yeah. The so so and 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 this is always an interesting one because it's a, it's a, it's a little bit of a mixed bag. Um. So, uh, certainly since the twenty eighteen Mac, um, emissions have generally uh, risen. So in the five in those five years, they've risen in 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 three of uh, of those last five years. Now we did see at one point three uh, percent reduction in emissions last year, uh, driven primarily by a reduction in fertilizer use um, and more of a stabilization in animal numbers. There there had been, of course, very strong growth in dairy cow numbers over the last number of years that were driving up methane emissions, um, counterbalanced to a certain degree by a reduction in suckler cow numbers. And and uh, um, the, the sheep numbers had generally stabilised off. Um, uh, but in general, we were seeing increases, uh, certainly since, since, since the abolition of milk quotas, and even slightly prior to that, um, we've been seeing a general trend towards upward, uh, an upward, trend in emissions with a couple of years where where those emissions have gone down but hopefully i think i think now what we've seen is probably a leveling off um of agricultural emissions and uh, i would expect the trend to be downwards now over the next few years how we've done in terms of the actual mitigation options say that we're in the 2018 max so we've had very strong uptake in low emission slurry spreading um, we've had strong interest in protected urea. I think the issue that there's been around protected urea has been around availability in co-ops. And, and, and again, that's something that needs to be tackled. Um, um, you know, we've had very, very strong uptake of dairy EBI, of course. Um, so, the you know, some of the other measures, uh, such as some of the manure management measures and uh, things like clover, clover now and, and multi-species warts, uh, certainly over the last two, three years, has seen a huge upsurge in, in interest. So, so again, um, that, you know, that's been good news. And then on the tillage front, strong corporation uh, cover cropping, uh, of course, have been uh, fairly strong. 
Um, we have some really, really excellent questions coming through. So I think we'll go straight into the questions. And uh, Shrapat, there's just yep. quite a few okay. coming through so we can share them between us. Yeah, okay. Uh, there's a question there. Looking at the MAC and all the measures, if all were implemented by dairy farmers, for example, would the overall cost be negative or positive? Uh, the overall cost would be negative for dairy farmers. Um, and the reason for that is mainly um, uh, because dairy EBI is so strongly uh, cost negative. Um, dairy EBI skews everything. Now, if you were to take dairy EBI out and just look to, at the rest of the other measures, you'd be more or less cost neutral between the, the, the measures that cost money, such as feed additives, versus the, 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 um, the measures that are uh, cost negative, such as clover, or liming, you know. So the message there is that dairy farmers, if they try to adopt all of them, they won't be out of pocket. They won't be out of pocket. But the one thing I would say that's very, very important is that if you're putting clover in your sword or if you're uh, uh, altering your soil pH, you need to cut your fertilizer by the amount of nitrogen you save. Otherwise, you're A, not going to save any emissions and B, you're not going to save any money. Okay. Um Question there, how is reducing uh, finishing age by two months cost negative? And it's just point if weather conditions uh, do not allow grazing longer grazing season, will feed not need to be introduced? Okay, so so again, this 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 is this will change from farm to farm, but in general, uh, reducing the, the the cost of production uh, by reducing by two to three months, and um, and of course optimizing your beef genetics, optimizing your animal health, um, the reduction in carcass weight uh, will be offset by the reduction in the cost of production uh, over those three months. So again, that's work that's come out of uh, our colleagues in Grange. Okay. There's a question here. Where uh, where are the sources of, of the assumptions available uh, in terms of the calculation of the, the MAC and the pathways? I presume just search for Chagas Mac uh, on so the Google if, and you'll you'll get so if you down, yeah so the the Chagas Mac if you put in Chagas Mac uh, you'll uh, be led to um, where our Mac is so there's two documents up there there's a 15 page summary for um, for stakeholders that gives everything in a, in a much more digestible format um, um, otherwise you can download the full document. Uh, uh, from the website as well. Um, and in terms of the calculations, um, there's about 126 pages of appendices with all the calculations uh, uh, in there. So you can go knock yourself out and uh, go through them all. Okay. There's, a, a, I suppose, a, a question there in relation to how difficult it's going to be and to what degree do you see the, the, the um, uh, targets as, as stretch targets? Well, they, well, it 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 is a stretch target, and and originally when we when we looked at pathway two, it wasn't done for the wasn't done for the purpose of meeting the target. It was done to see, um, you know, how far could we go, you know, or how, uh, while we weren't at the biophysical limit necessarily of all of the measures, uh, we wanted to see, you know, what was the 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 stretchiest target that we could we could meet and it just so happened that it actually did meet the the the, the actual uh target as laid down under the, the the climate action low carbon development act now 
So, so what it does mean is, as I said, that they're in, they're incredibly challenging targets, and and again, you know, things like connected here, things like the advisory service to signpost farms will be really key to helping farmers on that pathway. But to put all of the onus on advisory um, and education alone uh, would be, I think, highly unfair to our colleagues, to you guys in advisory. Um, you know, um, it's going to take more than than just advisory and um, and education. There's a question here in relation to the feed additives and to what degree, as was some experience with with, with the uh, protected urea. To what mm. ex- degree are we going to have the availability of, of of product, and to what degree is it going to add substantial cost to the dairy production in particular? So, so the cost is about eighty euros per head. Um, so, so there is a reasonably substantial cost. Um, 3NOP uh, will be licensed um, for indoor use um, in, uh, in dairy cows, I'd say, uh, in the next 12 months. Um, so it'll be commercially available uh, within the next 12 months. Um, I think what, you know, what we're hoping is that either A, a bolus will be developed for 3NOP, or that um, uh, other other chemicals, other inhibitors such as halides, um, where you you only have to feed them once a day to to a cow, uh, will come onto the market and and um, and and those halides then because you're only feeding them once a day, uh, you get a reduction then over over the full uh, twenty four hours. So so again, we're hoping. That over the and there's a huge amount of work going on in uh, in Grange and Moor Park in Athenry, uh, uh, looking at this in both um, in in dairy systems and beef systems and sheep systems um, at looking at and 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 again some of these other inhibitors are actually much lower cost than three up and you know you'd also see. Um, what you tend to see is these technologies tend to be quite expensive at the start, but then. Um, as you get more of them produced, that they their their price comes down quite substantially over time. Gary, there was a question, a few questions in relation to your the the biomethane calculations, um, and and one in relation to the feedstock used. Uh, is it is it grass silage or what? Type? It's it's so it's a mixture of grass silage and um, a mixture of grass silage and slurry. So. Um, the the there there's there's three main areas of mitigation uh, from biomethane. There's the biomethane uh, displacement of fossil fuels themselves. There's also the fact that you're feeding slurry straight into anaerobic digester, so you save on methane associated with manure management. And then of course digestate that's produced out at the end. And there's good and bad things about that digestate. So the digestate that's produced, all of the nitrogen is available which is great as a fertilizer replacement, but so it can also be bad as for ammonia unless it's um it's processed properly and it's spread in the right way. So again, we would see that digestate is probably having to be acidified maybe, um, or certainly have to be post-processed. It could be separated, for example, mm-hmm. between the liquid fraction that contains all the nitrogen and yes. the solid fraction that contains the P and K. Yeah, and that technology is is around um, the the um, and, and I think the yeah, first colleague, particularly colleagues up in Afby and in Queens are doing a lot of work on slurry separation and uh, post processing. 
And I understand that the, the grass silage would be based on a sort of a red clover type system. Is that? Is it can that... be, yeah. So it can be, uh, uh, again, uh, colleagues in Grange, Kira Bosang, uh, um, who's a recent recruit. Um, they're looking at red clover um, systems. They're also looking at grass clover systems um, in combination with slurry. Um, so the, the, they would be the main, the, the kind of the agriculturally based um, biomethane feedstocks that they would be generally tend to be the the, the feedstocks we'd be looking at. And so would, you, would you say it's pretty inevitable now that the, this, the whole biomethane uh, industry is going to see a, a quite an expansion in Ireland over the next Yeah, it's, uh, certainly Gas Networks Ireland are, uh, are very enthusiastic about it. Um, I think it will probably needs um, a bit of a kickstart from the government. So a little bit of joined up thinking, I think, between uh, the relevant government departments uh, would probably be required. But certainly the, the 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 private sector seems to be starting to gear up. But, I mean, trying to get 200 plants built and through planning and everything by 2030 is going to be incredibly challenging. Hey, Gary, a, a technical and probably not a simple question. How will GWP star versus GWP 100 adjust the MAC curve? Yeah, so so we did actually investigate the impact of GWP star because it is a, a live issue. Um, and what you tend to see, uh, again, you have to adjust the target for GWP star as well. Um, but what you would tend to see is that under GWP star, um, pathway one would actually get you to, to, to where you need to go. And, that, and that's because um, with GWP star, um, the reduction in methane, if you can get methane uh, being reduced, uh, is amplified by around about a factor of three um, under GWP star. But um, the health warning on that is if you get increases in methane, they're also amplified by a factor of three. So yeah, the methane has to be uh, going down and going down consistently. There's a couple of questions in relation to, to AD, one uh, around fugitive emissions of biomethane and the other around potential uh, ammonia emissions from uh, the, the digestate uh, and yeah. uh, from potential aeration. Yeah. So, yeah, so you've, again, there's a huge risk with digestate of increasing ammonia emissions, uh, because as I said, all of the, all of the nitrogen is in the form of ammonical or available nitrogen. So that, that digestate does need to be treated. We're very clear on that within the MAC. Um, in terms of aeration, again, it's a very good question. So particularly the, the, the older style aerators, and um, what we used to see was, very good for reducing methane emissions, very bad for ammonia emissions. Um, however, there are newer style aerators that um, uh, don't have a huge amount of uh, uh, ammonia emissions or extra ammonia associated with them, but do see a reduction in methane. Okay. There's, a, I suppose, a general question. What program and actions would you expect to be required to reach the 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 levels of uh, mitigation that are are set out in the MAC? Yeah, I, I suppose so. I, I break it down into two pieces. So for the first carbon budget, we have two. We're set two carbon budgets. First one is up to 2025, and the second one is 2026 to 2030. So for the first carbon budget in particular, um, I think we need to go aggressively at reducing nitrogen. Um, so uh, get your pH right for every for every pH unit. Uh, you shift your soil pH 
say from 5.5 up to 6.5, um, you release about 70 kilos of nitrogen. You also release phosphorus. Um, so uh, again, that means you can you can you can cut back your your mineral fertilizer. Um, similarly, uh, if you put legumes in, put in clover, multi-species wards, etc., and um, they'll fix somewhere between eighty and one hundred kilos of nitrogen per hectare. Um, you know, so um, get your pH right, get clover in if you can. Use your slurry as judiciously as you can as well. You know, spread by low emission slurry spreading again saves on nitrogen fertilizer. Um, but you know, doing all these measures like um and and not reducing your nitrogen fertilizer will end us end us up in a worse position. So so you, so you need to be cutting your nitrogen uh, fertilizer and nitrogen fertilizer is still quite expensive. So um, and then. Any of the mineral nitrogen you have left behind, move over to protected urea, move over to 18612. I presume the usual caveat when it comes to liming, uh, Gary, is where it, it's it's uh, in sensitive areas. That needs sensitive to areas, HMV, yeah. You've got to be really careful about that. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Question uh, here, Gary, just in relation, we talked about the role of, of, of government policymakers and, and advisory services, but where do you see the, the role of processors, the agri-food businesses fitting in to support and drive and encourage the adoption of, of on-farm? Yeah, so, so a lot of the processors and the, and the, the agri-food companies um, have to reduce their scope three, as they're called emissions now, so... Um, so, so really, I think, uh, and we have talked to a number of them, uh, uh, recently and, you know, they understand this and, and are trying to decarbonize their, uh, their supply chains. Um, as, but I think, uh, certainly, um, I, I, I think the, the processors and, um, it, it's going to be vital that they're involved. Um, you know, if they want to reduce their scope three emissions, uh, they're going to have to um, help incentivize uh, reduction on-farm reduction, um, because that's where the majority of the emissions uh, are occurring for the the production of their of the of the produce that they're selling. A question there in. In terms of uh, with uh, emissions only at one point, uh, reductions only at one point two percent in in 2022, and a need for four point eight percent. What measures have most impact on low stocked, extensive, and low nitrogen using farmer farming going yeah. forward? Yeah, and, and and this is this is this is always a big challenge um, uh, for farms that don't use a whole lot of nitrogen, um, and that are quite lowly stocked. Um, so uh, what I would say is that uh, you take your your typical um your typical suckler uh, beef farm, um they're probably only applying around about sixty to seventy kilos of nitrogen per hectare on average. That's what's come out of the National Farm Survey. Um, I would contend that uh, a farm that is doing that doesn't need probably doesn't need to apply any mineral nitrogen. Um, if you've got your pH right. And uh, uh, again, get in some legumes uh, into the sward, um, and then I, I I think it's about optimizing your animal health. Um, it's about looking at your uh, at your maternal traits in terms of fertility, um, uh, looking at your terminal traits in terms in terms of lightweight gain. 
um, and 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 really optimizing, um, you know, optimizing those traits so that you can then start to reduce uh, reduce finishing times. The question here that the national herd reduced by uh, 4.6% between 2022 and 2023. I haven't seen figures for 23. It might be 21 and 22, but that is that the sort of of decrease that's that's uh, projected forward, or and is it consistent with what's been happening over the last number of years? It's not consistent with what's been happening, um, but it is uh, consistent. So what has been consistent is there's been a consistent increase in dairy cow numbers over the last number of years. There's been a consistent decrease in suckler numbers over the last, you know, quite a number of years. Um, and I think, again, we project that those uh, trends will continue. So, you know, by 2030, we will have actually less total number of bovines in the country than we have at the moment. We'll have slightly more dairy cows and slightly less suckler cows. So then, and they're simply the trends that have been ongoing for the last number of years. Quick question, uh, maybe, maybe or maybe it's not very quick. Uh, how do feed additives affect uh, the animals? They don't. Um, so in general, the, the 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 good and the bad thing about three up is that it doesn't last very long in the animal. Um, so in fact, you and that's why you need to. That's why in general, the the science that has gone on uh, has been on TMR diets, um, because it needs to be fed little and often to animals because it, it it breaks down in the body very very quickly. So in fact, there has been uh, studies, and there is literally there's, there's no trace can be found in either milk or in, in meat produce. So um, there's no impact on the animals. There has been, with some of these inhibitors that have been fed, uh, there's some indications that there's an increase in productivity because you're not losing carbon as methane. So the carbon can be used uh, instead for um, uh, for milk or meat production. But, you know, that... that uh, they're small, small levels, so it's it's uh, it's a fairly mixed bag as to whether there's really any in, increase in productivity. Question there: if we're to get the increase, just one last one, uh, <laughs> increase in, in AD. Uh, do you envisage that will be farm scale or industrial scale? No, industrial. It'll really be industrial scale. So, um, you know, whilst there might be some farm scale um, AD systems, which might be, you know, combined heat and power systems. I think what we're looking at here is large scale systems um, that are producing large commercial amounts of uh, biomethane that can be either fed directly onto the grid or can be tanked and used as LPG or used in uh, in electricity generation. We, we've had a number of presentations on AD from uh, Gas Network Ireland and, and our own colleagues in Chagas. So I encourage people to, to have a look at through those and, and they do show the, 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 uh, the, the targets that are being set out there quite clearly. Um, we're, we're out of time, unfortunately, Gary, and we do have more questions coming through, but uh, Sadly, we just don't have the time this morning. Um, Gary, really appreciate the really very clear presentation that's been very clear and all the comments coming through that people appreciated that clarity uh, that, that may, may not have always been there in the past uh, when it comes to trying to interpret these MAC curves. But uh, I think it was very, very clear the way you presented it this morning. Um, before we finish this morning, I want to just take this opportunity to say a very special uh 
thank you and, and best wishes to our former colleague, Andy Boland, who has recently retired from Chagask. Andy was a cornerstone of the Signpost webinar series, and uh, you'll see in the, the credits, he's still appearing there as uh, one of the producers of the series and has been really uh, instrumental in the organization of the, the series and, and uh, sourcing speakers. And uh, we just want to acknowledge that enormous uh, effort that Andy has put into the series over the last number of years and to wish Andy well in his retirement. Pat, I'm sure you'd like to, to echo that. Absolutely. So um, thanks thanks to Andy and, and best of luck in your, your new endeavours. Uh, next week, we'll be joined by uh, Dr. Catherine Keena, who's going to be discussing planting and managing hedgerows because it re we are moving into that time of the year where uh, pl hedgerow planting season and uh, the next week's webinar will be the, the, the start of hedgerow, National Hedgerow Week, and there'll be a series of events and and um, publications and and uh, social media around hedge hedgerow planting uh, to prepare for the season coming up. So please do join uh, join us for that. And also, we've been asked to remind people that the RDS uh, Forestry Awards are still open for applications uh, today was the deadline, but I understand that deadline has been extended. So uh, if you want to look that up, uh, it's uh, go onto the, the RDS website and the, the Farm Forest uh, Awards are, and uh, Woodlands Awards are uh, open to applications. Um, I, I imagine it'll be open for another week or two, but uh, do get your applications in now if you are uh, interested in uh, participating in, that, in those awards. So until next week, thanks for tuning in. And Gary, thanks again for your presentation and uh, have a good weekend. You've been listening to the podcast version of the Chagisk Signpost series, the weekly webinar that promotes and examines sustainability in Irish farming. Don't forget to join us live every Friday morning for our latest webinar. For more, visit chagisk.ie. And you can also rate, review and subscribe to the Signpost series on Apple Podcasts, Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts from. I'm Mark Gibson and thanks for listening.